on that right away. <sighs> I hate my job. That is not seven items. What? You can't cut me off like that, you little... Wyatt, did you eat the cookie? No! Christmas sucks. Okay, come on, like, I mean, it's snow. Welcome to Rochester, buddy, like, come on. Put that down. No! No! Well, what is up, Northridge Church, man? Great to see you and be with you this morning. We're one church in multiple locations, so I want to say, hey, what's up to Webster, Greece, Henrietta, our Rochester campus. Thanks for being here this morning, man. We're honored to have you. We're starting a brand new series, and you know, every Sunday after our, our, our services, I find myself, much like our campus pastors, out in the lobby. And the reason why I go out to the lobby is to hang out, to have conversations, to pray for people, to answer questions. And one Sunday, I found myself out in the lobby. I was having a conversation with a good friend. Uh, she's a woman. She's a grandma. She reminds me a lot of my mom. And we were just kind of conversing. And so in the middle of this conversation, uh, what happens a lot of Sundays is because my wife are, and I are in the lobby having conversations, our kids ministry volunteers, which shout out, are amazing. They're right now pouring into the next generation of our church, they often bring our children to us in the lobby. And so I'm in the middle of this conversation with this woman and, you know, Joelle runs up to me. She's my five-year-old and she gives me a big hug. She says, daddy, you're here. And, you know, I'm like, Joelle, hold on a second. Daddy's having a conversation. And so Joelle often, when I'm in the middle of a conversation, she knew who I was talking to. She kind of holds my leg and just sits there and listens. And so in the middle of this conversation, Joelle pulls away from my leg and she begins to tap this woman on the hip. And then she asks this question, when is the baby due? That's exactly how I felt. As I picked my mouth off the ground and rebuked my daughter, I said, I'm sorry, she speaks of what she does not know. I didn't know what to do, okay? I was, it was terrible. But I would bet that many of us can relate to my five-year-old daughter because there's a lot of times in our lives where our mouth gets us into trouble or maybe your kid's mouth gets you into trouble. There's, the, the, there's those moments in life where that filter doesn't catch what it should and it just comes out and immediately you're like, what did I just say? And why did I just say that to my boss? You see, we, we all have issues sometimes with our mouth. And the good news is we're starting a brand new series called You Kiss Your Mother With That Mouth. We're going to be talking about the power of our words, that our words truly do matter. And in this series, more specifically, we're going to talk about the three problems that our mouths actually bring into our relationship, into our circumstances. And the first problem we're going to talk about in this series is the problem of criticism. The problem of people who just love, enjoy, focus on critiquing people, calling out their faults. And let me be clear this morning, as we jump into this conversation about criticism, I am not talking today about the helpful, constructive criticism that will actually help people grow. What I'm talking about this morning is the rude, unkind, uninformed type of criticism that is honestly rampant throughout our culture. You've experienced it, you know it. 
And here's what my guess might be for many of us this morning is we actually hear the introduction of this message and we're like, yes, I've been waiting for this message. Because you know what? My boss or my spouse needs to hear it. Can I get an amen? And we're like, man, I'll share this on Facebook with all the people who I know in my life have critiqued me. Shame on them, right? But, but can we just start at this foundation and realize that not only do I need this message, but we probably all need this message because our words matter. And here's what I know about the general public. Here's what I know about just in general of people is we love critiquing, but we hate being critiqued. We love, it's almost what comes natural to us is this ability to find faults in everybody else, but of course, ourselves. And we're, we're good at it. We really are. I mean, especially Christians. Christians are really good at, at nitpicking and, and finding faults in, in everything, in every situation, in, in people. But the moment the tables are turned and you're no longer critiquing, but you are being critiqued, whoa, hold on a second. No one said we could talk about us, me. Like, oh, that's just a no-fly zone, right? Because we love to critique, but we don't like to be critiqued. And the Bible actually talks a lot about our words. It talks a lot about criticism and, 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 and the negative impacts of it. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, the apostle Paul, he says this. He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is actually a, a pretty famous passage in the Bible where the Apostle Paul talks about the Old Testament law. And he says, you know, the whole law, the Ten Commandments, all of it, the Mosaic law, you can take it all and concentrate it into this one command. Love people, love your neighbor as the way you would love. Very similar to what the Gospels say as the golden rule. We know the golden rule comes straight out of the Bible, treat people the way you want to be treated. So the Apostle Paul says, in your relationships, we must learn to, to love, to speak to people the way we want to be spoken to. And what's fascinating is actually what he says next. In the next verse, he says this, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, now if you zoom in here, what's, what's, what's amazing about the Apostle Paul is he's talking about in your relationships, here's what love should look like. But right after he says that, he warns us of our critical words. He warns us of our fault finding because he realizes that if we truly live that way, we'll wreck the relationships that we actually long for and, and love. He says, be careful because your words matter. Be careful because your criticism can do a lot of damage, damage that might actually not be repairable. Now, it's interesting, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, maybe the barrier, the barrier, your critical words actually might be the barrier to the destination you want to get to. Let's think about it like this in the context of marriage. Maybe things have been hard in your marriage lately. You've been dealing through some frustrations and, and you wanna have intimacy in your marriage and, and maybe the Apostle Paul is suggesting that, that your critical words are actually the barrier to the intimacy that you long for in your marriage. Maybe it's the nitpicking of your spouse or, or the constant critique of your husband or your wife that is actually blocking you from the intimacy that you long for in your marriage. Or maybe it's, it's with your kids, right? You, as parents, we long to have a close relationship with our children, and maybe the Apostle Paul is suggesting that your critical words, your, your, your nitpicking, calling out all your kids' flaws is the actual barrier between you and having a close relationship with your kids, or maybe even worse. 
Maybe it's the barrier, your critical words are the barrier from actually sharing the gospel in your workplace. Because your coworker is saying, hey, you know what, I don't want to hear about your loving God because I don't see any love in you. And, and he's suggesting in your relationships, we, we, you want to take the whole law and fulfill it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, be careful though, because your criticism can do a whole lot of damage. In fact, Proverbs continues the conversation. Chapter 12, it says this, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now here we have this sharp contrast in the Bible. The, the first person it talks about is, is the person who speaks recklessly. The person who doesn't have a filter, who just kind of speaks their mind. They just say whatever kind of creeps up into their head. And and the Bible says that's a reckless person. And you know what uh, the words of the reckless does? It gives us imagery. It says they pierce like swords. Your, 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 Your reckless words can actually be like a sword penetrating the skin. And what the author is saying is you have no clue the power, the damage that your criticism can create. But then in contrast, he says, the tongue of a wise person. Now, James speaks to the tongue of a wise person. He says, that person is slow to actually speak and quick to listen. That wise person, the the scriptures say, the, the words of the wise bring healing. What he's saying is you have no clue the power of your encouragement and how it can bring healing and build others up in the journey of life. And I know this to be true because I just experienced it. If you just go back to Christmas Eve, uh, here at our Rochester campus, we had three services. We had two, four, and six on Christmas Eve. And at the end of the the, the last service at six o'clock, I went backstage. If you don't know this at our Rochester campus, behind the wall that you see is kind of this hallway where our bands and I walk to come on stage. And in the middle of that hallway, there's a table that I use for every service. It's it's full of water and snacks for, for the day. And so I, I, at the end of the, our Christmas Eve services, it was about seven o'clock, I went back, I take my iPad and I put it on that table before I go out in the lobby. And as I put my iPad on this table, I realized that there was like 40 white cards with my name on them. I had no, no clue where they came from. I had no clue who they were from. The only hope that I had is that they were full of gift cards. <laughs> you know, Christmas, let's go. And so I, I grabbed these you know, 40 cards, I kind of stuffed them in my coat and I went and said goodbye to everybody, Merry Christmas, and I went home because my family was waiting, I had people come to my house, and you know, we're gonna go through the Christmas festivities, we're gonna eat a lot of food, and it was about 11.30 at night before everybody left and we cleaned up the kitchen. And so I get in my, ha- in my, my bedroom and my wife goes, hey, what are all of those cards? And I, I was like, I honestly don't have any clue. And so around midnight, we sat in our bed and we slowly opened each and every one of them. And it was notes from our staff, just words of thank you, words of encouragement. And it was incredible how moving it was for my wife and I, how healing it was, and how much it lifted us up. Because words matter, whether they're spoken or they're on a simple card. And what I know about people in our society, in our culture, is people have enough doubts in themselves, they don't need yours too. In in our culture today, guess what's happening is we are growing as people more and more insecure. Why is that? Because of social media, because of all the technology that we have, we are compared to everybody's highlight reel. And what does that do? It makes us insecure. 
And so when people, including myself, when we look in a mirror, you know, we don't see courage, we don't see bravery, we don't see potential. Maybe all the things people see in us, you know what we see when we look in a mirror? We see flaws. We see problems, and all of those things combined equal us and what we see. And here's what I know about life, is is for those of you who are critics, is the last thing people in our culture need today is more doubts because they have enough on their own. And that's ultimately what your critical words do. They put doubts in people's hearts and minds about who they are and who God created them to be. So this morning, we're gonna focus in on one verse. One verse in Ephesians chapter four, a really powerful verse. The apostle Paul says this in verse 29. He says this, do not let any. If you have your Bibles open or your your Bible app, I'd encourage you to highlight, underline that word any, circle it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. So so the apostle Paul says, hey, there shouldn't be a shred, a slice, a, a word or a sentence or a paragraph or an email or a text message that comes out of your mouth or with your thumbs that is unwholesome. I don't know about you, but that's really convicting to me because I don't have to go back like other than like yesterday to find some unwholesome talk that came out of my mouth. Like it doesn't take me long to go back in my past to realize, wow, blew that one yet again. So the Apostle Paul says, don't let any of that come out of your mouth. But then he continues, he says, but only, I'd circle that word again, only, underline it, highlight it, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Think about that for a second. Think about the gravity of how much that would change the way we talk today. If nothing actually echoed out of our mouths that was unwholesome or, or degrading or, or hurtful or painful, destructive, but only what would build people up, encourage people, lead them to hope, I think our conversations would look incredibly different. Mine would. And so when you, you look at people in, in the journey of life, I've really kind of narrowed it down. There's two types of people. The first type is, is what I call a fault finder. You, you might know somebody like this. This is the person who believes it's their spiritual gift to critique everybody. <laughs> you know, they, they can't go through a circumstance or meet a person where they don't have something that they don't like or something that they find fault in. And the, the bad news for all of us is we are all like that. We are all really fault finders, maybe at different levels, but we're all fault finders. And these people say things like this. Can you believe the way they raise their kids? I mean, can you believe that they they would do that with their kids? I mean, let's just just send them to jail already, would you? I mean, they they say things like this. Can 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 you possibly imagine how he ran that meeting, or can you possibly imagine that kids in, in this generation don't have a plan? When I was their age, I had a plan. Come on, next generation. They say things like this. Man, I just don't like the way that person breathes. Like, just nasally, like, come on. Did you see what that girl posted on social media, on Instagram? Like, I know she claims to love Jesus, but it seems like she just loves her body. I'm not judging, just saying. Fault finders. I think we all know a fault finder too. And no, this is not your opportunity to elbow your spouse or your neighbor. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. (laughs) Here's the bad news. If you are a fault finder, which I believe we all are a little bit of, Here's the two people you can relate to in scripture. Two people. The first is a group of people, it's called the Pharisees. 
They were the religious leaders. They were what we would call in our culture, the pastors. And they were supposed to be the example of what it looked like to follow God. But the one thing the Pharisees were really good at is finding fault in everybody but themselves. I mean, they critiqued everybody. And actually, they were so good at it that they convinced themselves that they actually could find things wrong in Jesus. Think about that for a second. Holiness incarnate, the very perfect son of God, and these Pharisees had convinced themselves that they had the capacity to find something wrong in Jesus. That's how good at fault finding they were. That's the good group. (laughs) The other person that we can relate to as fault finders is the devil himself. Do you realize in the Bible, the devil is called the accuser? And what his main job description is, is to accuse me and you of all of our faults, all of our wrongdoings, all of our disobedience, and all of our sin. That's what he is. He's an accuser. He's a fault finder. And there's a little bit of that in all of us today. And I I ask myself this question, why is our culture so much like this? Why are we so good at finding fault? Why does it seem to come natural to us? I got three reasons to that question. The first one, we're so good at finding fault and critiquing people because we are full of pride. We're full of pride and we would never say this out loud, but although I believe it's hidden in our heart, the reason why we critique decisions, the reason why we critique people and circumstances is because at the end of the day, we would never say this out loud, but we believe it in our heart that we are better or we can do it better. And so we believe that and so that naturally causes us to find fault in people. The second reason, first we're full of pride, secondly, because we're insecure. You see, I I told you, our our culture is growing more and more insecure, and you know how insecurity fleshes itself out? Is when we feel our insecurities rising up, you know what we naturally do to protect our flaws, to protect our problems? We call out other people's problems. And what's usually the case is we call out the problems in people that we actually struggle with, because the best way to cover up our problems is to call out somebody else's. So we're fault finders because we're full of pride. We think we can do it better. We are better and we're insecure. Third, we just don't understand. We don't have the context, even though we might believe we do. So we, we find fault in, in a certain person or a decision because we, we think we understand all the details, but we don't really know what's going on in their life or in that decision. We assume we do, and so we find fault in it. It's much like this. I, I'm so guilty of this. I remember when I was a newlywed, and Ashley and I were married for a couple years, and we would hang out with people with kids, and I found myself so many times saying, my kids will never do that, and I will never parent like that. You know, five years later, I find myself, my my kids and myself doing the very things that I promised would never actually happen. Why is that? Because I had no clue. I didn't understand what it meant to be a parent. I didn't understand the context of parenting, how hard and difficult it is. So why do we find fault? Because we're we're proud, we're insecure, and we just don't have the context to understand. So let me ask you a question this morning. You know, when you think about fault finding, have you ever met a critical person you wanted to be like? Have you ever found somebody who was so good at critiquing people, finding fault in people, nitpicking, that you're like, you know what? You are so good at this. I actually want to be like you. I'm hoping and praying for all of us that's a rhetorical question. Because as I study the Bible and as I walk with Jesus, personally, I just don't think that's the type of person God wants us to be. 
even though that's often who we are, I don't think that's who God wants us to be. In fact, the second person is, I believe, the person God wants us to be, which is hope, a hope dealer, a hope dealer. Now, let me bring some clarity here this morning. Strong H, hope dealer, okay? Some of you get that later, okay? Let it sink in. (laughs) This is the type of person that they believe it's their job description, their spiritual gift to breathe life into people to encourage them, to, to, to just say, hey, I see potential in you. You're brave. That's a hope dealer. And when you, when you study the Bible, they're, they're, the Bible is full of people who brought hope, but I want to look and zoom in at just two. The first one is the apostle Paul. He was a master at bringing hope to all sorts of circumstances. He was a master in, in some of the hardest situations of bringing hope. In fact, look what he says, Romans chapter 15. He says this, may the God of hope, so he defines God through that word hope. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may love this word, this imagery, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you look at Paul's life, and we just studied Paul's life probably a couple months ago in a series called Paul. And when you study his life, you study his writings, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, what you will find as a common thread, a common theme in all of his writing and all the way he lived his life is he carried this mantle of through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he believed it was his responsibility to give people hope because he was a hope dealer. And I just took one chapter of Paul's writings, Romans chapter eight three sections from from Romans chapter eight, and I want you to just see the hope that Paul gives people through his writings. Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, for many of us as Christians, we've been walking God for a long time. The sad reality is, is we almost become numb to the hope that is in there, because we know that verse, we've heard it before. But look at the hope there. Paul says, hey, When you know Christ is your personal savior, when Jesus is your forgiver and and, and your leader, everything in your past, when you submit to Jesus, he doesn't hold that against you. You know how much hope that is for people? Like, hey, you know, I've got a lot in my past. I've got some things I'm not proud of. And to know that in Christ Jesus, I'm no longer condemned for that, praise Lord. You know what that does is it breathes hope into people. Romans chapter eight, verse 37, this is what he says. He says, for we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yet again, because of the gospel, Paul says, when you look in that mirror and you see flaws and you see problems, Paul says, you know what you actually can see because of Jesus Christ? You can see not not, not that you're just a conqueror, not that you're just brave, not that you're just courageous, but Jesus, because of Jesus, he says, you are more than a conqueror. That should instill hope in you. And and maybe the, the best of all, Romans chapter eight, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. So Paul goes on this laundry list of everything in the world. He says, heights and depth, future, past, present, angels, demons, all of this, everything in all creation, everything that you know. You know what it doesn't have the capacity to do? To separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the hope that Paul's dealing to to people, just like like me and you. says, hey, there is no choice, there is no sin that is too bad, that is too far gone, there's nothing that you can actually do in life that you deem bad enough to separate you from the gracious, merciful love of Jesus Christ. 
And now you know what that does for everybody in the room? It should give you hope today. It should give you hope because, hey, I can mess it up and mess it up and mess it up. And guess what? God will still love me. He will still be there for me to deliver hope. Where did Paul learn this from? Why was he like this? Well, he learned it from the, the chief, the master of all hope dealers. His name was Jesus. What's interesting about Jesus is that you study the Bible. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. First Timothy calls Jesus our hope. Titus chapter two says Jesus is the blessed hope. And first Peter says he is our living hope. You see, when, when you go to describe Jesus, it's almost hard to describe him without that word hope involved. And when you look at Jesus's life, his ministry and his mission and his purpose, the, the, the Bible, the gospels actually says Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You ever been lost before? It's a terrible feeling. Because as you try to find your way back home, what most people do is they get themselves even more lost. And you know how hopeless that feels? And it's interesting that Jesus, is, Jesus the gospel uses that language, that he was going to search for the people who felt hopeless in their circumstances, who felt lost in their situation, no way to get back home. You know what Jesus does deliver in those circumstances? He says, hey, I'm bringing you hope because I'll show you the way home. That was his purpose. That was his mission, to be a hope dealer. One great example of this is John chapter 8. Here is a woman who's interacting with, you know, the greatest fault finders, the Pharisees. And what are they doing? They're pointing their finger, finding fault in a woman who was caught in adultery. And so as they're casting their judgment on this woman, Jesus steps into the story. And you know what he says to this group of Pharisees? I can find fault in you too. I can actually see all your faults. And it causes every single one of them to drop their stones and just leave the story. And Jesus finds this woman alone. And this is what he says to her. He says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I. You want to know where Paul got that message? There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Maybe from Jesus himself, because he says it right here. I don't condemn you. And then he offers her hope. He says, hey, you're lost right now, but guess what? Go now and leave your life of sin and I'll show you the way home. Because Jesus came to give hope. He was a hope dealer. And because of Paul's ministry and because of Jesus's ministry, for you and I, it should place a mantle as Christians on our shoulders, a responsibility to deliver hope to the people that we love and care for, that we interact with. And I would ask you this question. Where does someone in your life right now need hope from you today? Where, who is that name or what is that face that you see at work or, or at home or in your family or one of your children or, or somebody in your life today? Who is that name? What is that face that you know they need hope and God is banking on you to deliver it to them? Who is it? I, I, I had to ask myself that question. One thing you, you gotta know about Sundays is I don't stand up on a stage preaching to everybody else. You know, honestly, this message is for me. It, where this, these messages come from is, is this heart and what it struggles with. And you gotta know, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with all of us together. And so I'm not gonna ask you a question that I don't just grill my own heart over. And I thought about this question, like what is the face that pops up when I ask this question? What is the name? And I just couldn't get my son's name and face out of my, my head when I asked who needs hope. 
If you don't know, Malachi is our son. We adopted him over a year ago from China. And Malachi's story has been full of struggle. I mean, he was in an orphanage. We brought him home. He's had two major surgeries on his mouth, cleft palate and cleft lip. And Malachi's major developmental problem is speech. He struggles to speak clearly. I mean, we have therapists and at his school and at our home almost every single day to help this boy develop so he can communicate clearly to everybody around him. And as his father wanting the best for him, it's really easy for me to find fault in him. I'm really ashamed to say this, but there are times where I want it so bad for Malachi that I will look at him and be like, come on, buddy, you can say this. I know you can. Come on, try harder, do better. You gotta do this. And I've realized after studying this and the Lord convicted me that, you know what this boy probably needs from his dad above anything else is just a little bit of hope. Buddy, I believe in you. You're gonna win and I'm gonna stand behind you every day until you get to the place where you can communicate clearly. You see how hope changes the story? I wonder who is that in your life today? I wonder what that face is or what that name is of the person that you think of that you know needs hope and and God is waiting and banking on you to go deliver that. So why does this matter? Like, why is this so important? Why are her words so valuable and so important? Well, Proverbs 18 gives us insight to that. Listen to these words. It says, the tongue, your words, your emails, your text messages, all your communication, the tongue has the power of life and death. Do you feel the weight there? The significance of of what the Bible says about your words? how powerful they can be, life and death. I mean, that seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? But yet it's true. Let let me translate that for you. You have no idea. I mean, really, I don't and we don't have any idea the power of a single word of criticism, how much damage it can do in your relationships, how much pain it can bring into somebody's life. But on the opposite side of that, you have no idea how powerful a single word of encouragement can be. How much life it can breathe into somebody, how much healing it can bring in in, in relationships. Because the tongue has the power of life and death. And I get it. I get it because I live it. It's, It's hard to tame your tongue. It really is, it's really hard to to filter your words because there's sometimes where you say something that you regret, but in the moment it feels really good when you say it. It's just like, oh yes, I got that out. It didn't come out the way I wanted, but it feels good. But later it doesn't feel so good when you see the damage it created. So how do we tame our tongue? I'm gonna talk about two ways. The first way is a really practical way. We wanna help you in this journey. And as we start this series, we did something. Our creative team did something unique. See, as you leave this morning, um, we're going to give you a gift, a gift that we custom made for you. See, at all of our campuses as you leave, and if you're watching online, this is why it's really important to come to one of our local campuses, because you miss out on some cool things like this. So as you leave today and you go to our exits, you'll see a a bucket or, or some form of thing holding a bunch of chapstick. It's a good time for chapstick. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's lips are dry. 
On this chapstick, here's what it says. We custom made it. It says, speak life. And then it has Ephesians 4 on the bottom of it. And here's the whole goal of this chapstick. It's not for you to have moist lips, by the way, just for, for point of reference. The whole purpose of this chapstick is for you to put it in your pocket when you, go, when you leave here today. Put it in your pocket in your home. Put it in your pocket at work. And the moment you go to find fault in somebody, the moment you go to criticize someone in a negative way, you know what you need to do? Put on some chapstick. <laughs> and I don't care how glossy your lips get. You keep putting on chapstick, okay? And I'll just be honest, you know, we ordered a little extra. If you need to take two, just go ahead and take two. Okay? But in all seriousness, this might be just a, a simple reminder to tell you to shut up. In Jesus' name, I mean, obviously. But I'm not naive enough to think that this is our solution. I think this can help in the meantime, in these three weeks. But what I know about your chapstick is like my chapstick. Maybe some of your chapsticks won't even make it out of the auditorium you're in. Some of you, your children are going to eat this chapstick. <laughs> or you're going to find it in the wash destroyed. And so I'm not banking on this to be our solution. I know what our solution is. Our solution is us coming back to this truth that God sees our faults but offers us hope. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel is the gospel is actually the thing that will hold your mouth. The gospel is the thing that will remind you to speak life into people. It's not a chapstick, it's the, what Jesus accomplished for you. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus is, you know what, he knows all of our faults. He sees them, but yet he doesn't hold them against us. But in the midst of our sin and our disobedience, God delivered hope to us. Here, I want us to lean in this morning because this is really important. Being a hope dealer doesn't mean that you won't see faults. The Bible is clear, we all have faults. We're sinners fallen short of the glory of God. And so faults are everywhere. It's impossible to go through life and interact with people and not see faults. Hope dealers see the faults. You know what they don't do is they don't hold those faults against people. They don't remind people of their faults, but actually seeing people's faults can be a positive. Do you wanna know why? Because it puts a bullseye on where we need to deliver hope. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus saw us in our sin. God saw us and all of our faults and what our faults did was created a bullseye for God to do his most generous act where he took his son and he found the bullseye of our sin and he said, I'm gonna deliver hope right in the darkest places of your life. And I'm gonna give you my son and he's gonna go to a cross and he's gonna die and three days later, he's gonna give you the victory over your mouth and everything that comes in life's way. You know what that's called? Hope. We all need it at certain times in life, and the hope of the gospel is the hope that we cling to today. So here's what we're gonna do, is we're gonna remember the hope that Jesus gave us this morning through something we call communion. And communion is just really two symbols. It's, it's a cracker and it's juice that remind us of Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed that give us that hope that we cling to, that give us that victory over our mouths in every situation. And there's a couple things you need to know about communion. Number one, communion is for believers. 
And so if you're here today and you don't know the hope of Jesus Christ, one, I would beg you to talk to somebody. Ask your campus pastor, talk to the person who invited you. Ask your questions before you leave here today because the hope of Jesus Christ can change everything in your life. But communion is for people who have placed their hope in Jesus Christ. But also as believers, as we approach communion, there's one thing that we have to know that the Bible says is maybe your fault finding has caused some damage in some relationships that you have. Your critiques have hurt people and it hasn't been resolved yet. The Bible actually says that you should withhold from communion and that should be a reminder to lead you to ask for forgiveness, to seek to restore those relationships that maybe your words have broken. And so maybe it's a, a simple text or conversation that you need to have, and today you withhold from communion because you need to get some things right with the people that you love and care about. But for the rest of us, this is an opportunity as our bands sing a song and our, as the volunteers in a little bit just pass out those symbols, let those symbols remind you of the hope Jesus has given you, but also the victory over your mouth. That through the gospel, I can win this battle and I can watch my words because I know the power behind them. And so maybe it's a chance to ask for forgiveness for the words that you've used inappropriately and to make a commitment to God and say, hey, it's gonna be different. It's gonna be different. I'll mess it up, God, but I'm gonna aim towards knowing and, and not letting any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. And so our bands are gonna come and they're gonna sing a song. Our volunteers are gonna pass out the elements. You do exactly what you need to do this morning and take some time with the Lord before we celebrate the victory and the hope that he has given us. You do that now.